0: verses 22 through 36, which you'll find in page page 888 in your pew Bible. This is the word of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them, and he was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Inon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bear witness, look, his baptizing, at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of God.
1: Let's pray. Father, as your word has been read in the hearing of your people, so now as I seek to proclaim it faithfully, I pray that you would be our teacher and that you would apply your word to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In first Corinthians chapter six, verses nineteen through twenty, the scripture reads, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Well, this is a hard concept to grasp. It's even more difficult to, a concept to live by. After all, we make our own decisions, we, and we're responsible for the decisions we make. So it certainly seems like we are our own. Additionally, we see our life from our own perspective. My field of view It's totally different than your field of view. None of you have my perspective, and I don't have yours. And even though you may be looking, many of you may be looking forward at the same time, still your perspective is unique to you. So again, it seems like we are our own. Now, this uh, passage from 1 Corinthians 6 when it says you are not your own you are bought with a price of course this is talking about the fact that believers in Jesus Christ are not their own they were bought with a precious uh, with, with his precious blood his blood was shed to redeem us for God you are all you all belong to God because God's your creator to belong to Him as His Son we need to be purchased and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and so this is what 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 tells us when it says you are not your own but even though the Bible says this because we have our own individual thoughts, because we have our own unique perspectives, and then you add in a good measure of the flesh or um, what we uh, also know as the sin nature, um, it's easy to forget that we do not belong to ourselves. Or to put it more directly, it's awfully easy to... To believe that we do not, um, that we do belong to ourselves and that everything is about us. Even devout Christians can and do replace the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the Trinity of me, myself, and I. As we are working our way through the Gospel of John, we're going to see numerous times where Jesus' own disciples make everything about themselves. We're going to see uh, times where they start having arguments about which one of them is greatest. After Jesus ascends His throne, who's going to be next in line? Uh, and it's quite embarrassing to see them uh, in the presence of Christ making everything about themselves. But we're not going to look at Jesus' disciples this morning. Rather, our attention's going to be on uh, some different disciples. They're going to be on the disciples of John the Baptist. And apparently what had happened was John the Baptist's disciples had gotten very caught up in all the excitement and activity and emotion that was surrounding the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember John chapter 1? Um, how everybody from Jerusalem and all Judea were coming out to uh, hear John the Baptist and to be baptized by him. And there was quite a commotion. And John the Baptist was at the center of the nation's attention. And so then being one of John the Baptist's disciples also put them at the center of all this attention. But all of a sudden, almost it seems like out of nowhere, John the Baptist has some competition. Because Jesus has gathered a group of disciples around himself. He's stationed himself about... Uh, about 30 miles uh, southwest of where John the Baptist was. John the Baptist had moved further north, but Jesus had uh, taken a group of disciples and had moved to the southwest. Uh, Jesus is down closer to Jerusalem. He's in the Judean countryside while uh, John the Baptist is up in the Jordan River Valley. Uh, the, the area is not as populated. And uh, Jesus is, uh, is not only moved closer to Jerusalem with his group of disciples, but he's also baptizing since Jesus is closer to Jerusalem, closer to the sinners um, uh, of population, and also He's doing these miraculous signs, healing the sick, and well, then the crowds uh, begin shifting away from John the Baptist, and they begin coming to Jesus, where Jesus and His disciples are baptizing. And so you see here in verses 22 22 through 24, after this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside and He remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Ion near Selim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. And then verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was... um, or He who was uh, with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, He is baptizing and all are going to Him. There's a principle that uh, I try to teach to my children. Nothing good happens when you've got too much time on your hands. That's a pretty general principle. Well, since the crowds had moved away from John the Baptist, Uh, The disciples of John the Baptist then had too much time on their hands, and so they they ended up getting into an argument with a Jewish man about the rites of purification. Apparently this discussion got the disciples all stirred up about the fact that the crowds had moved on away from John the Baptist and were now going to Jesus. And so as they are talking among themselves, the more they talk, they become horrified. In fact, we can read between the lines in verse 26. When he, when they come to to when the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and they say, Rabbi, who uh, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Um, I I think here's what here's the subtext. Um, they're saying to John the Baptist. Jesus is a Johnny-come-lately who came to you after you had already been baptizing and you were generous enough to give Him attention. And now He has stolen your followers. I can just hear the exasperation in their voices as they uh, make their complaint to John the Baptist. And what they're doing here is they are forgetting that it is not about them. The excitement of the previous months that had surrounded John the Baptist had slowly in their minds also become about them as well before we wag our heads in judgment over their jealousy that people were leaving John the Baptist and going to Jesus, listen to Matthew Henry's uh, comments. Matthew Henry was a Puritan uh, commentator. And uh, he says, aiming at the monopoly of honor and respect And respect has been in all ages the bane of the church and the shame of its members and ministers. There's always been a jealousy of rivalship and competition. In other words, we like honor, we like respect, we like having great crowds come and follow us. And so there's this. the spirit of jealousy and rivalship and competition. I think Matthew Henry is exactly right. We want our honor and our respect. We love it. And if someone takes it away from us, well, there's going to be war. Jealousy, rivalship and competition exist between churches. They exist between fellow Christians. Um, and it is all ugly. And it is dishonoring to Christ it demonstrates that our hearts revolve around ourselves rather than jesus christ uh, david Crabtree's not here this morning but he and i serve on our presbytery's mission to north america committee and the mission to north america committee is the um the, the church planting wing of our denomination and uh, right now we have a lot of of churches being planted. We have 30 churches in our local presbytery, and our presbytery extends from uh, just north of Port Charlotte up to the Hillsboro and Pinellas County line and over um, into Lakeland to, um, to the end of the Polk County line. And we have 30 churches in our presbytery. And we are planting five new ones. In addition to the thirty, so thirty churches planting five new ones, that should be a cause of rejoicing. But you should hear it when one of those churches gets within maybe fifteen miles of another church. All oh, the screaming that uh, and the hand wringing that uh, that happens. Because oh no, we're you know we may lose our members to another church, and and it goes on and on, and and it can get kind of ugly. John Murray says, we live too much on the plane of the disciples when they argued which of them should be the greatest. Jealousy of one another, when analyzed, is just jealousy of Christ Himself. The desire for self-supremacy is an expression of the sin which above all others seeks to undermine the very purpose of the gospel and the gospel ministry. You know, I imagine that if Jesus uh, himself came back to earth and started preaching, I imagine most ministers would accuse him of sheep stealing. Uh, It can be that bad. But look at John the Baptist's response. Look at verses 27 through 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist's humility is striking. Why is he so able uh, or why is he able to be so free from the vanity that is so common to so many and look, look look deeply at this passage John the Baptist i don't believe is trying to be humble i don't think that is even entered into his mind i don't think he's saying it's my job to be humble rather his focus is not upon himself because his focus is on Jesus Christ. He was so awed by the sovereignty and glory of Christ that he understood without even thinking about it that it wasn't about himself, that it was about Jesus Christ. John the Baptist's attitude is, well, God assigned me my task in life, that's what I must do and no more. I was given the task of testifying to Christ and no more, so that's what I'm going to do. And when people start listening to my voice and they go and follow Him and leave me, mission accomplished. That's what he says essentially in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And he had been given his purpose in life from heaven, and that's what he set about to do. Verse 28, he reminded uh, his disciples that he wasn't the Messiah, that Jesus was, and he was only sent to go before him. Verse 29, he compared himself to the best man at a wedding. What's the most important job for the best man at a wedding? Well, His most important job is to make sure that the groom looks good. Um, If the best man grabs any attention for himself, then he's not doing his job. Uh, And then the secondary job of the groom, I'm sorry, of the best man is simply to be happy for the groom. And uh, John the Baptist plays the part of the best man exquisitely. Uh, Remember when Jesus showed up. Going back to John chapter 1, what, what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and directed all the attention to Jesus. And now he says that His joy is complete, that His joy is overflowing that people are leaving him to go follow Jesus. Verse twenty nine The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, or in our um, our language, the, the best man who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then look at what he says in verse thirty. He must increase and I must decrease. Well, this is easier said than done. Uh, it's easier said than done because we are typically uh, prideful people. We like to exalt ourselves. We like to be the center of attention. In our daydreams, we rarely, we rarely fantasize about becoming less. We like to dream of becoming more. Truth be told, many of us long to be more especially more than everybody else around us. And we like to be recognized as being more. Again, John Murray addresses this prideful tendency in us. He says, We are quite willing to be associated with the kingdom of God and active in it, when it involves glory and honor to ourselves, and we occupy the place of supremacy and popularity. But too often, we have little to do with the kingdom when we receive no recognition. How is it that we can overcome this ever-present temptation to make everything about ourselves? The answer uh, to this question uh, comes by simply looking at John the Baptist and observing how John the Baptist looked to Jesus. He recognized that everything, even his purpose in life, comes from God. Everything, uh, Even the things he did not have. Think about this. He did not have a wife. He did not have children. He didn't even have a home that we know of. He's living out in the wilderness, dressed in camel skins, eating honey and locusts. And he seems okay with that. Even the things he did not have he recognized, was a part of God's sovereign plan. In other words, he knew that God is sovereign. He knew that God is all-wise. He knew that God loved him. So John the Baptist did not need to grasp after recognition. He did not need to grasp after greatness. Being in God's, God's hands gave John the Baptist contentment. Are you content with who God has made you to be? Are you content with what God has called you to do? Are you resting in His sovereignty? Or are you restless in your discontent? All your circumstances are really God's providence in your life. The Bible says, Everything that happens... It's because God has foreordained it. Where you are is because God foreordained it. The circumstances in your life right now are happening because God is sovereign. Life can be difficult, the people around you can be difficult, but God is sovereign. Do you believe this? And how does it guide and temper how you respond to difficulty? Consider not only John the Baptist's contentedness, but also his humility. Uh, His purpose in his mind was to become less so that Jesus Christ and His greatness might be magnified. Verse 30, He must increase, I must just decrease you are holding on to your visions of your own grandeur, true humility will never be yours. If you are intent on taking first place in your life, you will never know the joy of experiencing real humility. But on the day of judgment, you will experience true humiliation as you stand before the all-searching gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you let go of yourself and your self-seeking plans, Christ will flood your soul with true, real, God-given humility that always leads to true joy. Since we have some comparisons to Watergate uh, all over the news right now, um, I thought it might be appropriate to... um, Reads something to you that uh, Charles Colson uh, had written in his book uh, Loving God. And if you don't know your history, or if you were born um, uh, later, then uh, you may not know Charles Colson. He was one of um, Richard Nixon's, excuse me, Richard Nixon's uh, chief advisors, and he was a central figure in the Watergate break-in. He ended up going to jail because of what he did. And in jail, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And while he was in jail, he began um, realizing uh, the, the ministry that God could have to people who were in jail. And so uh, he started a prison ministry, and he was going to. This, this is one of his first times speaking in a jail, and uh, they had organized it. In fact, a Supreme Court uh, justice had come uh, uh, to uh, to this revival service that they had in, in jail, and so he gives his. Uh, thoughts about that. He said, the prison choir began the service. Their task was to warm up the crowd and they were a roaring success. Even the Supreme Court Justice, sandwiched between two muscular convicts in the front row, loosened up Struggling at first to maintain his dignity, he gradually began tapping his foot and soon was grinning and clas- clapping with a rest. As I sat on the platform waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time to scholarships and honors earned, cases argued and won, great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life had been the perfect success story, the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once I realized that it was not my success God had used to enable me to help those in this prison or in hundreds of others just like it. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious. All my achievements, meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose uh, the, the one experience in which I could not glory. For His glory, confronted with this staggering truth, I discovered in those few moments in the prison chapel that my world had was turned upside down. I understood with a jolt that I had been looking at life backward, but now I could see. Only when I lost everything that I thought made Chuck Colson a great guy had I found the true self God intended me to be and the true purpose of my life. In other words, Charles Coulson learned about true humility by uh, coming to the end of himself and was able to see his life purpose that much more clearly. I'm going to finish very quickly. I want us to look at verses twenty one or uh, thirty one through thirty four. And I want us to see the greatness of Christ because Christ is above everything. In other words, what I want us to see is I don't want us to simply see John the Baptist. And I don't want us to see his contentedness. I don't want us to see his humility. I want us to look beyond him to Jesus Christ. And so this is what John the Baptist is doing when he's speaking to his disciples. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. He who bears witness to what he has seen and has heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And so he describes Jesus in verse 31 as the one who comes from above, the one who comes from heaven, the one who is above all. Thirty-four. He describes Him as the One whom God sent, as the One who speaks the words of God, as the One God gives the Spirit without measure. Then in verse 35, he describes Jesus as the Son whom the Father loves, as the One into whose hands all things have been placed, and the One who brings eternal life to those who believe in Him. In other words, John the Baptist is saying to his disciples, it's not about you. It's about Him. He is above all. And he's telling his disciples, it is crazy and it is dishonoring to Christ to take glory to ourselves in comparison with the glory of Christ and His greatness. Verse 36. It's like the passage comes to a screeching halt. I'm not exactly sure that this is um, John the Baptist who is speaking here. In fact, I think uh, John the Apostle who wrote uh, John's Gospel uh, stops and makes an editorial comment in view of God's greatness. Because we've seen the disciples of John the Baptist. And they've made everything about themselves. And then through John the Baptist, we've seen the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so John the Apostle stops and he asks us this question, Who is most important to you? Are you most important to you? Or is the Lord Jesus Christ most important to you? And so he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Who is most important to you? You or Jesus Christ? To whom are you looking for life, fulfillment? Happiness, joy. You are the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you, look to Christ. Only the Son has eternal life. Only in the Son shall we see life. Only in the Son shall the wrath of God be be removed. Let's pray together. Father, Um, We've gone over um, the typical time, but our life does not belong to ourselves. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. And I ask that He would use His Word in our hearts and our lives and help us to trust wholeheartedly in Him. We ask in His name. Amen.